0: Let's pray. Father, we trust you completely. We trust your word because it's your word. It's from you. It's you that we trust. And you are 100% totally, completely trustworthy, which means the things that you say are not only right, not only good for us, they are perfect. And so we trust in your perfect word to lead us and guide us this morning. Pray that you would fill me with your spirit because if not, we're in trouble. So. Total dependence on you to teach, Lord, <clears throat> and not just for the teaching, but for the learning and the listening, as we also depend on your spirit to absorb your truth, apply it to our thought and mind to uh, sharpen our doctrine and impact the way we think and therefore the way we live. So we want godliness in our life, and we know it comes from knowing your word and knowing you, so grow us this morning and help us to live it this week pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, last week, we addressed false teachers and their motivations. And at the end of the text, last week, we discovered that these false teachers are motivated by financial gain. To manipulate others. So to gain money that gains them power, and with that power and with that money, they gather a greater following to further manipulate and to destroy the church. And not only destroy the church, not only destroy believers, not only destroy God's institution of believers, the church, but also to lead unbelievers into false gospel, into false doctrine. I mean, think about the cleverness of Satan in all of this. It's a lot easier to keep someone from the truth if you give them something that's partially true versus something that's the complete opposite. For example, if we're going to debate whether Michael Jordan is the greatest player in the history of basketball, to have an actual argument to detract from thinking that Michael Jordan is the greatest ever, you have to present something that's close to him, like... LeBron James. That would create an argument that would distract someone from believing that Michael Jordan's the greatest. But if I came to you and said, I'm the greatest basketball player ever, you'd go, we're not having a real conversation now. Like <laughs> this, this, isn't, this isn't true. You're not even close. And therefore, what you're saying is so ridiculous, I'm not even going to listen to you because it's so far from reality. But if I offer you an alternative that is so close to the truth, then... It detracts from the truth. It's the same thing with doctrine. If, if you want to dist- distract, what a false teacher needs to do is offer a gospel that is so much like the gospel itself that it's easier to believe. And, and this is the manipulative tactic. And so they, they offer a false gospel that's so much like the gospel. And if you look at, if you look at uh, false, do- uh, false gospels in the New Testament... The kinds of situations in the early church that Paul is dealing with as he writes these letters to these churches, oftentimes what these false gospels are are what we call syncretic gospels. It's syncretism. The, the, the root word there is sync, right? That, that, there's, that they're like synced up together, that they're so close. They're, you're taking the true gospel and you're syncing it up with a, a false gospel and you're combining them together so that it has elements of true gospel that enable you to believe it and and so like new testament uh, or first century church heresies that were about the gospel that were being perpetuated look a lot like the real gospel they always included jesus often they most of the time they included jesus they included jesus death for your sins like first century heretics have a really hard time trying to tell people like no jesus never existed like we saw him uh no jesus didn't perform miracles we saw them no jesus didn't heal people we saw it uh jesus didn't die we saw him die jesus didn't rise from the grave we saw him rise from the grave we saw him for 40 days after he's risen he's appeared to hundreds of people so these first century heretics Can't run around being like, no, there's no such thing as Jesus. They have to agree with what the church already confirms and and knows. Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, he died for your sins. Rose from the grave. Yeah, loves you. Yes, he's God. Absolutely. And you also have to follow the Old Testament law. It's like, well, that's a false gospel now. But it includes the true gospel, making it more palatable. And that is the manipulative tactic. And what that does is it leads unbelievers to a false gospel. And that's what their motivation ultimately is, is not only do they want to destroy the church and true believers, but they want to lead unbelievers to their false gospel so that they can gain a following. And with that following, they'll have power and money. And with more money comes more power. And it's easy to convince an unbeliever, like, hey, you know, it sounds... As, let me just say this. As believers, we understand the importance of grace. We know how powerful the grace of God is in the gospel. We understand that, like, how could you possibly want a gospel without God's grace? You're not a good person. You can't earn salvation. You need God's grace. What is a gospel without grace? To a believer, that makes perfect sense. To an unbeliever, that doesn't make sense. Not unless the Spirit of God has enlightened their mind to believe and understand the gospel. Then it doesn't make sense. So what is actually attractive to an unbeliever is your behavior determines where you go. That's attractive to an unbeliever. Because as believers, we go, how could that be attractive? How could you think that you could be good enough to go to heaven? That's because you're a believer and you know you're not. They don't know that. You ask a majority of Americans if they're going to heaven or not, and they're going to tell you yes, and you say, why? And they say, ah, I'm a pretty good person. They love legalism. They don't, and they love it because that's the human condition, to love ourselves. Because legalism says, I'm good enough. And that's our human sinful condition, to be good enough. So they actually love a legalistic gospel. You want to convince a non-believer to follow your heresy? You just add some sort of element of just behave or be good and do some good things and, 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 you're, and you'll go to heaven. And you just mix that into the real gospel. Like, you know, Jesus died for your sins to make it, you know, and then you, you add some legalistic element to it and you've created a false gospel and non-believers love it. Because it satisfies their sinful nature to feel like I've earned my salvation. They may not even phrase it that way or think about it that way, but that's the truth. And so these heresies are very clever and manipulative and they get people off track. And what these false teachers gain from this heresy that leads unbelievers to then what follow them. It leads them to give money. They give money and with more people is more... Uh, A recognition and with more recognition comes more money and with more money comes more power and with more power comes, and it it just works as a cycle and it feeds itself and it's a system of ultimately chaos and it's deceptive and it's a lie and it's worthy of eternal destruction. And that's that's what Paul is working off of from last week's text and then he ends – he's working off of this concept at the end of the text – End of verse 5 from last week on this concept of financial manipulation. This idea that they are manipulating for monetary gain is what Paul says in verse 5. And then Paul in the following verses, in the verses we're going to cover today, he dives into this warning about the sin of loving money. So he's talking about false teachers, and then he gets to verse five and he says, Well, they have a motivation here, and that motivation is monetary gain. And then he take, picks up off of that monetary, that concept of monetary gain and their manipulation of finances to gain a larger following and to ultimately get more comfort in life. And and then he runs with that as a warning for the church. So then he he's basically diving into money. And ultimately, it's, the, it's a warning about the sin of loving money. And he shows us that there is, he shows us that, that better than the security of wealth is the security we have in Christ." And so that's where we are in verse six. And Paul says in verse six, "Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment." So verse six is playing off of verse five, right? At the end of verse five. Paul says that um, these people are depraved in mind and deprived of truth, imagining, meaning they've convinced themselves, that godliness is a means of gain. So it's not genuine godliness these false teachers have, it's a false godliness. And what Paul's saying is they're using this idea of godliness and they're using their made up, fake, false godliness as a ploy or as an instrument to manipulate people. So that they can gain money. And we know he's talking about money when he says means of gain. Because he then starts talking about money. And so now he's talked about the, the, these false teachers are, are under this perception that they can gain from, from their quote unquote godliness. And then Paul clarifies now in verse 6. Hold on a second though. There is great gain in godliness. If it has contentment. And Paul is not talking about eternal gain here, because I think we will all, all know and understand that as believers, we gain eternally when we get Christ. We know, we, we can look at our life and we could say, I, I could have nothing on, on this earth and nothing in this life and, and not have anything provided for me, but I know I get Christ after I die, Philippians 121, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I know I gain. Having Christ, I gain. At the end of the day, I gain. Even if I don't gain in this life, I gain when I die. And as believers, we know we have that eternal hope. But here in 1 Timothy 6, Paul is talking about earthly gain. He's saying there is great gain in godliness, meaning there is great gain for your life today on this earth with godliness if it's accompanied with contentment. And the gain we receive in this life for following Jesus comes only when our godliness is accompanied by, like verse 6 says, that contentment. Essentially meaning that the true gospel, opposite of what the false teachers are pushing, does produce benefits in this life. But they're not monetary benefits. Or at least monetary benefits are promised to us. And Paul elaborates on his point in verses 7 through 8. He says in 7... For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So now he's diving into this idea of contentment. And you can see the gospel truth underlying these verses. As the gospel tells us that we have nothing spiritually good to offer God. Because we bring nothing to the table. All we bring is our sin, which Christ pays for. With his own blood and his life, thereby giving us what we did not originally have to offer, life. Similarly, we brought no material value to this life. No one was born with wealth in their hands or possessions. Even a child can be born into wealth, but that child is not bringing their own wealth into the world. They're not bringing any possessions into the world They're not bringing any value to the world. And you could say, well, they're bringing the value of life into the world. No, they aren't. God is. They didn't make themselves. They didn't create themselves. And they didn't birth themselves. They were given as a gift from God and a blessing from God, which is what Scripture says children are. And so even the the value of a child, which is its life and the love that is accompanied with that life, is a value that is given to it at conception, given by God. So the children, child, has nothing to offer the world. And as believer, or as, as humans, as we continue to live this life and continue to just grow and, and live, we we don't create any value. And, and the thing is, I, I mean I see this stuff online all the time. It's just this like. Super motivation, I I personally, this is just me, this doesn't have to be you, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, it's just me. You know, sometimes Paul says, (laughs) not the Lord, but I say, this is one of those situations, not the Lord, but I say, I hate motivational stuff. It makes me sick. I can't stand it. Like, you gotta get up and you gotta go do this and you gotta make it happen and you gotta work hard and you gotta, you know, and all that stuff. And I'm like, eh, I don't need any of that. Like, first of all, life's hard enough. I don't need this guy breathing down my neck about all the things I'm not doing. Second of all, I'm not motivated that way. I don't have a desire to make my life the greatest thing ever. No, I have a desire to live peacefully in the presence of my Lord, following his footsteps. And if he leads me to a a pulpit where I'm seen and heard, so be it. If he leads me to a prison where I'm not seen or heard, so be it. If he leads me to the grave, so be it. If he leads me, wherever he leads me, I'll go. I don't care. But trying to create this place, this thing, this, this life that of this just like, you know. In it. Let me tell you another reason why it doesn't make sense to me. If everybody listened to these motivational people, then we'd all be equally just as successful, which would make us ultimately none of us successful. So it doesn't actually, like, logically even make sense that we all live that way. It doesn't work. And so I don't like that kind of motivation. And and I think, um, and I just, I go on I, online or I'm on, you know, like, whatever, some sort of social media app. And, and I I'm, and I'm, hear these things and I see these things and they're like, go get yours. Like, that kind of mentality, like, go make it happen for yourself. And I'm thinking... You can't. Even if you do, that is God's grace. He gave that to you. Or he allowed it for you. We see this principle in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul writes, what do you have that you did not receive? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer is an obvious nothing. There's nothing you have that you did not receive. Everything you have, you received. And you could say, well... I made my own money. I worked hard. I created this business. Or, or let's just say I worked out really hard and I created these muscles. No, you didn't. And I'm not not trying to remove the human element to your life experience because it is real. And yes, there is an aspect to the Christian life where I do want to motivate you to do things and make choices that you are doing. But the only way that any of that stuff can happen in your life is if God ordains it. And if you don't like the word ordain, if God allows it, he still is giving you those things. So even if you go to the gym and work out really hard and you gain big muscles... You should just be grateful that God didn't rip your arms off before you got there. Because he could. He can. If he wanted to, he wouldn't even have to do it in like a normal way. He could just rip them off for no reason. Like, he could do whatever he wants. And the only reason you made it to the gym, and the only reason you lifted those weights, and the only reason you walked out of there not injured, but you got your gains, is because God allowed you to. So, even if you could say, and let's, let's apply this to knowledge. Let's just say, no one's taught me. Actually, I'll give you an example. That That guitar. No one taught me how to play that. I figured it out on my own when I was 18 years old. Same guitar. Haven't changed it. Still has a sticker on it from Dante when he was three. (laughs) A little car sticker, Lightning McQueen. Never taken it off. That's an old guitar. I've had it for a long time. No one taught me how to play it. I just figured it out. And then I discovered chords and I was like, oh, should I ask somebody? So, like... I could, I could tell you, like, no one taught me how to play the guitar. Now i figured it out on my own. I get really braggadocious about it and, and arrogant about it. And what does Paul say? What do you have that you did not receive? Well, I learned how to play that on my own by the grace of God. That's how. By the grace of God. He allowed me, ordained me, to learn that, to learn that instrument. And if he doesn't ordain it, then it doesn't happen. And if he doesn't want me to do it, he won't allow it, but he allowed it. So what, who is it really from? It's from God. Where does musical giftedness and talent come from? God, where does the ability to know things come from? God, where does your ability to do anything come from? God, so even if you say I'm self-made and I learned this on my own and I've knowledge it, I attained on my own, you probably learned it from someone. And if you hadn't learned it from someone, then you learned it from God. Or he ordained for you to learn it or know it or discover it on your own. Through him. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4-7, What do you have that you did not receive? The rhetorical question being, or, the question being rhetorical means the answer is nothing. And then he says, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? As if you gained it on your, on your own. As if you had something to do with it. As if this was... You're great and God's not. That's what Paul's trying to correct here. He's like, you got to get your mind right. in the reality that all, all praise goes to God. Have you done something good? God gets the glory. Have you learned an instrument? God gets the glory. Did you make gains at the gym? God gets the glory. Did you do really good in your diet? God ordained it, allowed it. And he's the one making you do it. He gets the glory. This is what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is all about. And in that case, in that text, it's about our salvation. But he says that God alone has done this as he's given grace and faith, as he says in Ephesians 2, 8, as a gift. Why? So that no one may boast. So that nobody can say, well, I did this. I chose you. And that's why Paul calls faith a gift. You didn't choose God. God chose you. That's what Jesus told the disciples. You didn't choose me. I chose you. You love me because I first loved you. That's a gift from God. There's nothing, including our salvation, that we have produced on our own. And so why boast like we do, like we did, like we have something. Even your knowledge. If you've got knowledge, you've learned it somewhere, right? Where'd you learn math? School. Some teacher taught it to you, or a book. All my doctrinal knowledge that I have. Everything I know about the Bible. I got it from someone else. I am just this human machine I don't know machine might not be the right I'm just this human body with a brain and a mouth that absorbs information that's given to me by the grace of God and then regurgitates it back to you. I'm not creative. I'm not super smart. I'm not some genius. I haven't figured out doctrines that no one else. And even though there are some things in scripture where I look and I go, I think this is what this text is saying. And I've never heard anyone notice this before. I'll look into it and I'll be like, oh, there's entire books written on it. I'm not the first to recognize it. Someone else has already recognized it. And then I'll read their stuff and I learn. And my point is that even if I do, even if I discovered some unknowable thing that no one else has ever seen in Scripture. like, oh, guys, let me teach you something new. That was given to me by the Holy Spirit. I don't get the credit. God does. That's the whole point. There's nothing that we have that we did not receive. So even if you produced your own benefits without the help of others, God still gets the glory because he's the one ordaining it. And we see and we know it's because, because if there's something that you gain, we would call that gain good, right? If there was a gain in your life, say you got, you know, at the, at the gym you got muscles. In a book you got knowledge. In your spiritual development you got growth. Whatever gain uh, in, in your business or at your work you gain money. And whatever gain you've made in life, we would agree is good. Because if it wasn't good, we wouldn't call it a gain. We'd probably call it a loss or a detriment or a hurt or something. So gains are naturally good. And what does James 1.17 say? Every good and perfect gift is from above. And David prays this way in 1 Chronicles 29.14. He prays to God with the assembly of, the, of all Israel and he says, For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. Even our praise to God, even as we magnify his glory, even that is a gift given to us to feed back to God. All that we give to God, even praise and glory, were his, are his, he has given it to us to give back to him. And that's why David says in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, the the words right before this part, this is the second half of verse 14, right before this says, who am I and what are my people that we are thus able to offer willingly? His his question, David's question, is not a question. It's his point. His question is a point of praise. Who are we as human beings to quote unquote willingly offer God anything? Because whatever we offer God was given to us by God. That's David's theology. Now you can see this principle of. There's nothing you have that is yours. There's nothing you have that you gained. All of it is a gift of God. You can see how this is going to relate to money, right? So we bring no possessions into this world. We bring no wealth into this world or any objects of value into this life. And as Paul says, we can't take any of these possessions or wealth or objects out of this world when we die either. So we didn't bring them into the world and we're not gonna take them with us. So everything we have in between life, birth and death is just given to us. We are totally dependent, 100% dependent on God. Whether you realize it or not is irrelevant. You are dependent on God. Every person is, whether they recognize God or not, whether they're believers or not, we're all dependent on God. And everything you have, every possession you have, your phone, even your Bible, Your TV at home, the house you live in, the vehicle you drive, the job you have, the spouse you have, the children you have, the clothes you wear, the money in your bank account or savings account, the money you've got invested, the business you started, the work you do, whatever it is, it's all a gift from God. It's all a possession God has given you to steward well. So what would make money any different? Paul is not suggesting that we should not, or cannot, have possessions, or anything of earthly value. This is not like an anti-money, anti-possessions kind of text. What Paul is doing is he's he's using what we bring this idea of what we bring into the world, which is nothing, as a reason. Not to value earthly things above that which pertains to godliness. You come into this life with nothing and you leave this life with nothing. Why? To show you that you're dependent on God. You brought nothing here and you're taking nothing with. So everything in between, which we call life is an experience where you get to learn how to depend on God and realize that he's the ultimate giver of everything. And what Paul is ultimately trying to slide in here is this idea of if you can understand that truth, that should make you feel very content. If you can grasp that reality, life contentment becomes a lot more attainable. Because so often in this life, We're looking at the things in this life. We're not looking back at our birth where we brought nothing. We're not looking forward to eternal life where we'll bring nothing. We're looking at this life. And what we don't realize or often forget, I think all of us forget this often or at least time to time, is that the entire purpose of this life is for the eternal life. It's for the afterlife. This life is meant to feed into your life after this life. And so... We often get just wrapped up in this life and we see things and we go, "Ooh, that thing's valuable. I like that. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go to the gym and start working out and become fit. I'm going to go start a business and make lots of money. I'm going to play the lottery to win lots of money. I'm going to save lots of money. I'm going to invest lots of money. I want to make my money more. If I have more money, I can do more things in this life. In this life, you know that money's going nowhere after this life, and yet we spend this life to make this life better. It doesn't make sense. So that we can die and everything we work for just stays in this life and we continue without any of it. It's a waste of life. Which is why the gospel is the only thing that's valuable in our life. Because if it's not valuable, nothing has value. And so the gospel should be our priority. And instead, we are tempted in our sinful flesh to desire money. Because money gets us things. Things gets us comfort. And comfort makes us feel good. And it provides us with security that is meant to be provided by knowing Jesus. It's always the problem with money. So we are content when we have our necessities fulfilled. That's what Paul said says, if we got clothes and food, we're good. And the things we need to live and exist will be okay. And that is enough for the believer. Meaning the gain we get from godliness is not material or possessions or monetary. But joy. That's our gain. Joy. And you know what happens with joy? You get to take joy with you. Joy crosses over. You know what else crosses over? Contentment. You know what else crosses over? Praise. You know what else crosses over? Knowledge of Christ. Knowledge of God. Clothes? No. House? No. Cars? No. Money? No. Wealth? No. Your business? No. Your body? Nope. Does not mean those things have no value. And it does not mean that those are not things you should steward well. The problem is when those things become the motivation, the driving force of our life. The, you know, I've seen people who make their whole life about getting money. I've seen people make their whole life about getting fit. I've seen people who got their whole life about knowing more things. Those, those things don't cross over. Those things don't go into the afterlife. That's a waste of your time. Instead, those things can be in your life... And have value if they're stewarded well and appropriately with, as Paul says, contentment. Because contentment tells me that Christ is enough for me. I don't need to be a bodybuilder with a perfect body to be satisfied in who I am in Christ. I don't need, but, but, but I was given this body as a gift and I need to steward it well. So I should eat healthy and exercise and use my body appropriately. And Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 6, there's a 2nd Corinthians, one of the Corinthians 6, he says, um, oh, that your body is not your own, you were bought with a price. So therefore, glorify God in your body. So use your body to glorify God. Okay? Money is not evil. Money is not evil. We're evil. Humans are evil. We make money look evil the way we use it. That's the problem. So money's not evil. So having money's not a problem. But making your whole life about getting more money and making more money, that's a love of money. And and I think that it's on a spectrum, okay? When it comes to money, and probably with most things, it's on a spectrum. There's the extreme version of I'm going to run over every human being in my way to get more. That's super extreme. It's like, whoa, that's sin. Then there's this over here. I'm going to do nothing because God's in control. I'm just going to sit on my couch and wait for him to take care of me. That's what we call hyper-Calvinism. That's bad. Okay? But there's there's a spectrum in there. Somewhere in the middle is where we want to be. Where we are, we have a healthy biblical contentment with who we are in Christ. And having Christ is enough for us. Where if we lost all our money, we would still be joyfully satisfied in Christ. Life would be harder. But, we'd, but regardless of the situation in my life, I'd be satisfied in Christ. I'd be content. But I also have money, which isn't evil. And I'm going to steward it in a way that brings God glory. So I'm going to do what God commands me to do. I'm going to take that money and I'm going to give with that money. And I'm going to use it to take care of my family. And I'm going to use it to provide things for people. And I'm going to find needs where my money can fill those needs. And for most of us, I think, in America, at least nowadays, because things have gotten a little rough lately in our economy, is we're looking at it and going, the only thing I can use my money for is to pay bills. And that barely covers it. And so... Taking care of your family is a... Well, we just learned about it in chapter 5. Paul says, Anyone who does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's five, eight. So, obviously money isn't evil. It's how we use it. So this isn't like an anti-anything-in-life kind of text that Paul is bringing up. It is. It is a... Anything in your life, any gift from God, any possession, any object, anything of value, any money, anything that you have, whether it's this life or this brain, this knowledge, this body or the money or whatever you own, your house, your car, whatever, your job. It is given to you by God to steward well for his glory, to magnify the gospel and to satisfy your heart in Christ and to to force you into a place where you find Christ alone to be your ultimate contentment. And once we get to contentment, money just takes a whole new view in our lives. It just it just it just becomes this this instrument. It's no longer like, "Oh, when I don't have it, I'm stressed, and when I do have it, I'm like, oh, okay, good. And because I didn't have it for so long, I'm behind, so now I got to pour it all into this, and then I spend it maybe wildly or or too quick, and then oh, I'm out of money again, and it's just this cycle we live in as people, and it causes us to get stressed out, and it makes us think about money all the time. And all that thinking about money makes us all of a sudden depend on money. Now, how am I going to get by? I need this paycheck to come in. I need to make money. I need money to come in. I need money. 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 money. And we talk with our spouse about money. We need to save money. We need to spend money. We need to do this with money. We need to do that with money. And money, 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 money rules our lives, and we become lovers of money. And then again, like I said, it's a spectrum, Okay? It, there's a way to be a lover of money that is in, clearly and like, obviously evil, but that doesn't mean that you're not a lover of money if you're not doing those things. I would, I would venture to say that most people in this room, to some degree, have a love for money that is not healthy. Not everybody, because I don't know everyone's situation. I don't know your personal lives as well as you do. But I say that because if how we think about money and how we feel about money and whether we love money or don't love money or how content we are in Christ versus how content we are in our finances, if that's on a spectrum... And you're thinking, well, I'm not a lover of money. Well, you're thinking the extreme version. I'm, I'm not way over here. Well, you could be right here, right next to really healthy and still have a hint of a love of money. Now, if that's the case, that's probably not your biggest problem in life, right? <laughs> that's probably, I would look probably look at someone like that and go, well, there may, there, maybe there's a hint of the love of money in their life. But man, that's not their issue, that's not ruining their life or impacting them greatly because they're so close to healthy. But a lot of us are just somewhere in this spectrum at varying places depending on our situation. And so one way to know how you feel about money is how do you respond emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually when you don't have money? How do you respond when you don't have money? My, I, I've said this to my wife all the time. We've been, up, we've been on this roller coaster, this financial roller coaster our whole lives. Our whole married life has been like, woo. we're okay. Ah, no, we're okay. Oh, no. You know, it's like up, down, up, good, bad, good, bad. Just, it's life, you know. And anytime things get really bad or really scary for us financially, I'm always just like, I've never lived in a box on the side of the road. God has been incredibly good to us. We've always had a house. We've always had food. We've always had clothes. We've always had warmth. We've had everything we've ever needed and way more to the point where my wife and I now have decided that we're going to make drastic changes to our life. Drastic, like family shifting and reshaping the entire reality of our lives. And a lot of that has to do with money because we don't want to be ruled by money. And so we decided to find ways to get rid of it, money. And if you're thinking, oh, you must have a lot of money to get rid of money. No, not the case, okay? This is a matter of what we value in life. And we've decided we don't value money enough to do certain things in our life. And we're going to make dramatic changes that will actually hurt us financially but are good for our souls. That's what we decided. And that's what we're enacting. That's what we're doing in our home. Because I, now this is just inherently me. I, I do love money. I know there's a love of money in my heart somewhere in there. But I just don't feel, like, motivated by money. That doesn't move me, you know? Um, and so, like, it's very easy for me to live in the conviction and say, I'm going to make this decision that's good for our souls instead of good for our, our budget, you know? And then you think about how that applies to the church's financial situation. And look at our, the situation I just explained to you in the announcement. They're, they're, I'm not worried. I'm not worried. Even if we end up at a deficit and we have to take half of our savings out of the savings account and put it in our checking just to cover, I'm just like, I'm not worried. And I think some people would look at that and go, well, you should be. You're responsible for it. You ought to care more. No, I care a ton. I'm just not worried. And even as I say that, I I know there's worry in here somewhere. I know it's there. And by the grace of God, he's like, I just don't want you worrying about money. He just doesn't let me. Because if he let me, I would. And so, we just, once we understand the gospel, which we do, and we understand how satisfying Christ is, contentment becomes very easy to get. And when contentment is there, there is all of a sudden money just takes on a whole new, a whole new like, uh, reality in our life. Like, it's just this instrument. To get us to the next day so I can serve Christ tomorrow. Like what does money do? Money gets, comes into my bank account. I send it to a company that gives me electricity in my house so I can have warmth. So I can go to bed, love my family well, teach them about Jesus and come to work the next day and teach you about Jesus. That, that's why I have money. It keeps the lights on so you can see me when I preach. And if God took the money and the lights, I'd preach to you in the dark. It doesn't matter. I'd be content with that. And if you turn the heat off, let me tell you guys, during the week, we try to save money in a lot of ways. Brian and I have like, how are we going to save money? Like, let's turn the heat off. Now, there's a setback point, so, you know, we're not freezing pipes or anything. But the heat's off all week, except for that wing where my office is during the hours that I'm here. The rest of the week, it's this sanctuary and the hallways and the other rooms are so cold <laughs> And I walk in here every day and I'm like, it's not any warmer in this building than it is outside. It's so cold in here. And I'm like, I should just turn the heat on. And I'm like, nope, don't turn the heat on. It's okay. We're saving money. And I'm just saying, if God took the money from us and took the heat from us, I'd just preach in the cold. Or I'd preach in the dark or whatever God decided to do with us. And I just, when you look at money as this instrument, it's just this, this prop that God has given to us to play with and to use in a, in a way that we can somehow honor him with it. Then, and, and when you're satisfied in Jesus and money isn't something you need so badly, it makes life just so much simpler. Like think about how complex your life gets when you, all you're thinking about is, am I going to be able to pay that bill? When's the mortgage due? Do Am I, am I getting paid on time? We don't have enough money. We've got to put money in the savings. Oh, we've got to deplete our savings. When you start thinking that way and money starts ruling your life that way, you're not going to be happy. It feels chaotic and dysfunctional. It's exhausting. And you know what? I know this is like an age-old saying. Worrying about it doesn't change anything. Right? So just instead of worrying about it, put that worried, worry energy into serving God's people. Put that worry energy into the church. Put that worry energy into your family. Put it into the things that God loves. Put it into the gospel. Like, preach the gospel, teach the gospel, share the gospel, study the gospel, read the gospel, pray to God, develop your spirituality, involve yourself in the church. Get more, like, invo- like, like use that money as an instrument for God's glory. And the more you do that, the less you'll feel like you need it. And I can't promise you that if you do that, God will take care of you financially and make sure that everything's okay for you, because he doesn't promise that. But what I can promise you is contentment in Christ, and then regardless of your financial situation, you'll be satisfied. Who doesn't want that? I've made a decision in our family that I have... There are two things that we value in our lives. And it's okay to value both these things. It's okay to value money. And it's okay to value peace. And I've decided that in our family, peace is way too important. Way too important to have money create no peace or a lack of peace. So we have made drastic changes for peace. Because isn't that what we want? I want to be peaceful. I want the peace of knowing that, like, I have Jesus. That's enough. Like, it's really that simple. So, that peace comes with contentment. Contentment creates that peace. When you're satisfied in who Christ is, regardless of your situation, you get peace. And life just becomes way easier. So that's the positive perspective. And we get to verse nine and Paul shifts gears and he kind of does this warning thing where he really dives into those who are rich and the, the, this, this, this desire to be rich and what the problem there is. And he says, but verse nine, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Having possessions, having money, that's not inherently sin. And all that we do have ought to be subject for praise to God for his grace and goodness to provide you with any blessing at all. That's the most appropriate response. So the the problem isn't having money. That's not the issue. What Paul says the problem is is desire to be rich. That will get you in trouble. The desire to be rich causes one to choose avenues of life where they gain and often their earthly gain is at the expense of someone else. If you're going to gain, someone's probably losing. So to quote unquote get ahead, to listen to these motivational speakers like you got to beat everybody else. That's always like at the core of their messages. You got to be better than everybody else. It's like, but that's the opposite of what the Bible tells me to do. That's a false gospel that is preached to us in all of these mode. This is one of the reasons I hate the motivation. Is all these motivational things are always telling you to get ahead, which means you have to beat someone else, which is the opposite of Philippians two three, which says that we should consider others more important than ourselves. How about instead of me getting ahead, I want you to get ahead, and I'm going to stay back. Like what if that? There's a motivational poster for you. Lose. Period. (laughs) Like, that would require some context probably, but like, we don't, the the world doesn't think that way. But the Bible teaches us, we talked about it last week, taking a loss at at your expense for the benefit of others is the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus did. And that's how we should live our lives. So this kind of desire for wealth leads people into temptations, into certain snares for sin, and, and then into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And the desire for wealth is at the base of every evil empire and every dictator and every false teacher that ever has been. Even if power or authority is really their desire, they're like, oh, I don't care about money, I just want power and authority. That power and authority comes with wealth. Money gets you things. Things. Including power. You want an example? Bill Gates. Filthy rich and somehow has been given authority and power in our country to influence an entire nation into the kinds of decisions that are forced upon us. How that happened? I don't know. But it's happening. Why? Because he's filthy rich and therefore power. Money is power. That's the culture we live in. That's the world we live in, not just the culture. It's not cultural. It's timeless. So even if power or authority is motivating, the desire for money must accompany that motivation, leading to what Paul says in verse 10. He says, for the love of money is, the root of, is a root of all kinds of evils, meaning other things can be a root of all kinds of evils as well, and money is not the only root of all evils kinds of evils and it's not the root of all evils, which has often been the misquote of this verse. Money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. It's a root of all kinds of evils. Money's not the, the ultimate terrible thing. That's not that's been kind of perpetuated by a false reading of this verse, a misreading of this verse. It's just that a love for money is gonna get you in trouble. Like Paul said, temptation, snares, harmful desires and ruin and destruction. And the fruit of Paul's point is proven in verse 10 when he says, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's likely that Timothy knows exactly who Paul's talking about. And it's clear that this is the result of those who desire monetary gain over gain in godliness. They will abandon the church. They will pursue the world. Jesus talked about this in the parable of the sowers. That the cares and desires of this world and the pleasures of this world will choke them out. Because they think they'll be satisfied in those things. They get contentment out of that stuff. It's not true contentment, so it doesn't last. So they need more. And the reality is, there's not enough money in the world to satisfy a person. I mean, I'll give you an example. We were, last night, me and my boys were talking about, who's, who has more money? Uh, Apple or Google? And we looked it up. And Google's value is like, I think it was like 300 million or something like that. That's like the valuation of their company, 300 million. I'm like, that's a ridiculous amount of money. I can't even fathom that much money. Apple, slightly higher at $3 trillion. I was like, that number, I can't wrap my mind around. To give you a concept of what $3 trillion is, is if we were to take time in millions, billions, and trillions and put them in a second. I think I've told you guys this before. Um, a million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds. Anyone want to take a guess if you already know? 32 years. That's the difference between a million and a billion. A million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds is 32 years. You know what a trillion seconds is? 32,000 years. That number is so trillion, and Apple's worth three of those. <laughs> That's insane. That's an insanely huge number. And yet, that company is doing what? Trying to get more. Sell you new stuff, more stuff, cool stuff. They need more. I would probably get to a trillion and go, I think I'm good. I'm going to stop here. <laughs> I don't need to keep working. I think I'll retire at a trillion dollars. Three trillion. So I'm not saying Apple is evil. I'm also not saying they're not. But uh, (laughs) because I don't want to make a statement about them. My point is they represent what every company in the world is doing ultimately, which is give me more. They want more. They need more money. They want more. There's never enough. A love for money will not cease. You can't just say, well, I love money this much. It will grow. Because if you get money, oh, that just feeds into the love. You can't stop that train. That's going to kill you. that's why Paul's like, stop going after money and go after contentment in Christ. That will be godliness. And in that godliness with contentment in Christ, you will be satisfied. And you won't need money. God will provide for you. He'll give you what you need. Don't worry about that. But you won't need money. It won't drive you. It won't motivate you. And so it's this desire for wealth that is the sin problem. Okay, this isn't like, a, you could be thinking, like, this doesn't really apply to me. I'm broke. I don't really have a lot of money, so it doesn't really matter. I'm just kind of poor. Having money is not the issue. Paul's not talking about having money the issue is desiring it that's the problem and some some of the people some people who love money the most that have the greatest sin of a love for money in their life are some of the poorest people because they don't have any money and all they all they think about and do and want is more money. i just need to get by and they just depend on money and they never find christ to be satisfying or enough Think about it this way. A desire for possessions and money is why people steal, right? They want something, so they steal it. And who does most of the theft in our country? Poor people. There's plenty of rich who steal, but poor people. They have a desire for money and they can only obtain it illegally. Revealing their love for money is a sin that can pierce any of us, regardless of our financial status. This is not, no one is singled out or left out of this message from Paul. However, the rich must be careful since they actually have money, meaning their security can easily fall on their wealth instead of on Christ. And so because of that, James warns us. I'm going to read James for you. And and James warns the rich. And the warning is not just to those who are currently rich, but those who may even be poor but have a desire for wealth. And this is what he says in James 5, 1 through 5. Come now, you rich rich. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Now, that needs context, which I'm not going to explain right now because I'm not preaching James 5. Okay? This is not saying that if you have money— You're bad. (laughs) Like, he's saying, woe to the rich. And contextually, there's a certain type of rich person that's being described here. And not every person who has wealth would fit this description. And we'd also have to define what is rich. He says, come now, you rich. Stop. Define rich. If I make $100,000 a year, am I rich? If I make $99,999.99, am I not rich? If I make one more penny, I'm suddenly rich. Like, what is rich? And now, worldwide, every person in this room is filthy rich. You compare us to the world, the world average of wealth and prosperity, we are disgustingly rich compared to most of the people in the world. And you know what? Some of them, totally content. And yet we're like, I need more, I need more, I need more. Christmas is so hard for me. So hard for me. I struggle so much with our f- families. And we go visit two families for Christmas. And um, we've got a bunch of nieces and nephews. And we've got to buy them gifts. And they're going to buy our kids gifts. And we've got brothers and sisters and family members. And we've got to buy them gifts. And they're going to buy us gifts. And we've got parents. And we're going to buy them gifts. And they're going to buy us all that stuff. I think about how much money I'm throwing at these people. And it's like, just to say I love you? <laughs> like, what are we doing? Like, we're just spending money on each other to buy because of a tradition. And I'm just like looking at this and going, man, the things I could do with this, whatever, how much, I'm not going to say how much we end up spending for Christmas each year. But I look at it and I go, what if we just didn't do it? What if we just didn't do Christmas? We just didn't do gifts. Or the money instead of being some toy that I'm going to give my nephew who's going to go awesome and play with it for a week and then it's going to end up in the garbage can in six months. What if, you know, we, um, Holly's parents, one of the things they love to do for our boys is like, we don't want to buy your kids gifts for their birthdays. We want to get them together for one birthday celebration and they do what they call the birthday experience and they take them somewhere and they spend time with them and they spend money, but it's Spending money on the relationship, and it has so much more value to us and to them and to our boys and so like this is one of the reasons I struggle with christmas time, and it 's hard for me to throw money at this concept of just flooding each other with useless gifts that we could just buy ourselves i mean this <laughs> I realize that there's more to it than that, right? Like there's a tradition and there's relationships and it's important that we maintain those things and we love each other. So if that's what my family wants to do, that's what we're gonna do and we'll participate. We don't wanna be some weirdos who are like, I refuse to and then they you know. So but but if you think about it just logically we have like a cap, a dollar amount we spend on each other. So I'm spending 50 bucks on you and you're spending 50 bucks on me. How about you keep your 50? I keep my 50 and I buy what I want. (laughs) And I'm like, this doesn't make sense. What are we doing? And it's like, it makes sense because there's a tradition and it's about gifts and it's about giving. And there are gospel elements. And this is the cool thing though. Both of our families are believers. So we understand that even with our families, that we are all communicating through this gift giving, the gospel. And that's the one thing that keeps me hanging on to it. Because if it was just about the gifts or whatever, it would be pointless. And so you can see why. I don't know if any of you guys struggle with that in terms of Christmas time. But you can see how our lack of contentment in Christ and our desire for money, which gets us stuff, shows up at Christmas. Because what is Christmas all about? Stuff. At least in our culture, it's about stuff. And... What do Christians know? Christmas is about Christ. So instead of just saying Christmas is about Christ, instead of just preaching and declaring Christmas is about Christ, instead of just putting a bumper sticker on your car that says, Jesus is the reason for the season, we actually get content in Christ and see what that does to our Christmas. I'm not preaching a no-gift Christmas, FYI, okay? <laughs> Don't go home and go, hey, kids, we've changed our mind. No gifts this year. Pastor Mark doesn't like them. <laughs> Don't do that, okay? But what if we really made Christmas about Christ and the way we made it about Christ is we, were, we sought to be content in him? Jesus warns us. Mark 8:36. It's not about money, but it is about gain, and money applies here. He says, "What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life?" Monetary gain at the expense of your soul isn't worth the measly temporal benefits it provides in this life and on this earth. What Christ is teaching us is that He is enough. If you truly believe that, you will find contentment and security in Christ will follow. Let's pray. We love you, Lord Jesus. We are admittedly not perfectly content in you, um, but we want, want to be, and so we're going to pursue perfect contentment. We will fall short. And when we fall short, don't let us wallow in misery. Let us exalt in the grace that has covered where we fall short. And by that grace, enable us to continue to pursue perfection and contentment. Depending wholly on the gospel the entire way. Trusting in you, Lord. And looking at our money as an object you've given us to serve your purposes to magnify you, to give back to you, to serve you with, and to find joy in Christ, regardless of our financial situation, and to find joy in Jesus, regardless of our life circumstances in any way, shape, or form. So, Lord, we want that. It's hard to do, and it takes time to learn it. And so just ask that you would, day by day, walk us on that journey of contentment, Help us to make the tough choices to choose you over everything. In doing so, pray that you are honored and glorified as you satisfy us in making us content and secure in you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.